My great 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 uncle was on uh, Jeopardy uh, on July fourth. Uh, Rudolph Clausius. How did you he know? do? He was just a clue. He wasn't. He wasn't competing. Oh, I thought I was going to say. Like, oh, um, I would expect a bigger fanfare. No, he died know? in like the eighteen and seventies. Then I was also going to say Rudolph Clausius. <laughs> like I can't imagine anybody named that. <laughs> 2023. Like yeah. what the hell? Yeah, yeah. that was my. That He's got was hundred years old. That was my grandma's maiden name. Um, they they yeah. live, yeah, they lived in Prussia. He was a physicist. Oh, is he the entropy guy? Yeah, that was what the clue was about because right. he was a th- he he reinforced two of the laws of thermodynamics and coined entropy. Wow, which is incredible because it's Whoa. a great concept. Where's know? all that uh, entropy? Ro- you know, <laughs> to, you I know? haven't Come seen on. a dime. Dude. <laughs> I haven't seen a fucking dime of that entropy money. People go around <laughs> saying that all the time. Yeah, you know, the policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Tell oh, you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown them? They crown them, but they are who we thought they were. It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Stasulis, and I am joined here with Eric Marsh and Ryan Saunders. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us selects a topic for the week, a theme. And the other two hosts are challenged with bringing films to the table that meet the topic, address the topic up against the topic. Um, it was my turn to pick the topic this week. And I thought we'd try something a little bit different. Uh, we had a listener contact me and ask, do you take audience requests? And I said, no. Well, what do you got? And he presented a topic. So we have our first audience submitted topic. And I liked it, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm being a little cheeky here. No, we, we welcome it. And, and folks, we'd, we'd love you to submit more. We will either choose them or bin them, as the British, as the British <laughs> would say. Um, This topic comes from a uh, former student of mine at DePaul, uh, a a young fellow by the name of Dionisi. And his topic I'm going to be interpreting. He suggested a showcase on anger. Movies made by angry people or about angry people. We are highlighting that very hot, fiery emotion this week, that particular violent state of mind. So I presented Dionysi's topic to the boys, and they brought me a very heavy 
heavy, Ooh. heavy double feature with some very, very angry people. I needed, after this week, I felt a cold shower. And not in the hot, sexy way, but in the, oh my gosh, I gotta wash all these bad vibes <laughs> off of me because, <laughs> woof, this... <laughs> Was some angry cinema. <laughs> Without further ado, we should bring out the films. Ryan, you had the earlier of the films. Why don't you tell everybody what you brought this week? Sure. When I was sifting through some options, there, there was this film that, that kind of kept creeping back into my mind. A film that I had remembered being... Uh, I like mistakenly had remembered being like extremely beautiful. That was like how I remembered it in my head. I was like, Oh, what a beautiful film. Oh, it's exquisite. It's amazing. Um, and it is exquisite and amazing, but it is, um, it's, it's a film without a, a great deal of beauty. <laughs> um, I, I would, I would say, but I was like, I think it was pretty angry. And then upon revisiting it this time, we are greeted with the sound of like a gourd squealing pig at the very first image. And I'm like, Oh yeah, this is a, uh, this is an angry film. I think I was really inspired by you mentioning that it, it, it could also be an angry filmmaker, you know? And this was one of the first filmmakers I thought of, and that's the filmmaker Lino Braca from the Philippines. Uh, someone who's, I've only seen two of his films, but both of them register as, as rather angry films. Um, and so the, the film I picked is from 1976 called Inciang. Lino Braca was an exceptionally prolific filmmaker. And I feel like a lot of times the more prolific a filmmaker is, is a good signifier for how steamed and angry they can get. He did work in a wide variety of genres and styles. He wasn't just primarily like an agitated political filmmaker, but he did make a lot of films that directly addressed the social conditions in the Philippines when he was alive. Uh, he died very, very young. He died at the age of 52, but he did direct over 60 feature films. And it is it, the breadth of his filmography is like so expansive, and he made so many features within single years that a lot of these films are even lost, you know. And very few of them are in really decent shape at all to, to be watched. And this is one of them. The other one being the uh, his big film Manila in the Claws of Light. In Siang, which came out in 1976, was the first Filipino film that ever played at the Cannes Film Festival, and it really was one of his. Uh, kind of major breakout films. This was following Manila in the Claws of Light, but this is one of the ones that people have really held on to for it being like a film of, of great power and great intensity. It is an exceptionally angry film about a young woman named In Siang who is growing up in the Tondo slums of the Philippines. She lives in a pretty stuffy and overbearing home with her mother played by a sort of legend of the Filipino screen, the actress Mona Lisa, who is primarily known for her melodramatic work in like the 30s, 40s, and 50s, the golden age of uh, a certain era of Filipino cinema. But she is, you know, not really registering in that screen goddess pitch here. She, In Siang's mother is a, an intense person to live with. Someone who now after having raised her daughter through extreme poverty does expect a great deal in return in terms of In Siang basically caring for the home, sharing whatever meager income she receives with the rest of the family and the other people who are living there. And 
Part of the reason that she is full of all of this anger is she's also sort of a scorned woman. Her husband has abandoned the family, and she kind of projects all of that anger onto her daughter. And you know, this film, very broadly, is about people living in extremely upsetting conditions, and because of that, there's a simmering rage and anger that they all project onto each other. It's this circular nature of anger breeding anger. Uh, I, and I should say, you know, then as this film develops, In Siang's mother has a local street tough, this guy Dado. She takes him up as her new boyfriend. He's a much younger man, and he's got his sights set on In Siang. And this just, you know, goes down a very sordid and really terrifying path. Uh, and where lots of anger and resentment really bubbles up on the screen surface. So Lino, as I said, a very angry filmmaker. He was extremely opposed to martial law in the Philippines uh, during the time that he was very active, and he himself was someone who took to the streets. He was both someone who was a very socially conscious filmmaker, but he was actually a political activist himself. He was a member of the Concerned Artists of the Philippines, which attended a lot of big anti-government rallies. He also was a part of the Coalition for the Restoration of Democracy in the Philippines, and he actually contributed to the like new Philippines Bill of Rights. That's uh, right. He was like a part of a commission, but that like eventually like very quickly disbanded. But I, I from what I read, uh, his contribution was one of the only things that like made the final cut. You know, but he's a really passionate man, full of a lot of energy. I mean, to be able to make sixty plus films uh, in such a short span of time. I mean, he's sometimes people kind of refer to him as like the Filipino fastbender. Lino Bracco was a gay man. Uh, he was a Mormon, curiously enough, like converted to Mormonism later in his life. But he was just someone who like lived really fast, and he made a lot of work. And In Siang is a film that really left a strong impression on me when I saw it back in the day, and uh, that power is, is not dampened at all. It's a really remarkable mix of neorealism, melodrama, Shakespearean tragedy, you name it. It's all kind of just direct intense cinema and um i think it makes an incredible double feature <laughs> with the film that that marsh selected albeit as you said andy yes uh, one that was very emotionally challenging to to sit through again but so that is in Siang from 1976 thank you ryan marsh how about your film well um you know i was trying to approach the subject, I guess, less politically um, and more sort of interpersonally, because I was thinking about it and I had a great long list that included lots of like angry political movies. But I was really thinking like we do that all the time on here. We're always bringing like a lot of, you know, politically yeah. angry movies we've already done in Tranced Earth. You know, we've done a lot of uh, good stuff like that. And so I was looking for a different angle, maybe something more personal. And then I also was like, I want to find a punk movie, right? Anger, punk, you know, rebellion, this could work. Uh, and I, I dug around a lot, but one film uh, was at the fore from the beginning. And I felt like, you know, this is our first listener submitted topic. I wanted to go hard, you know, I didn't want to, uh, you know, pull my foot off the gas at all. So um, ultimately, yes, I, I went in that direction uh, with an extremely disturbing and, and fucked up and very, very angry film. 
directed by uh, a very angry man, Dennis Hopper. Uh, And that film, of course, is Out of the Blue from 1980. Uh, This is a film that was, you know, largely forgotten after it was made uh, and sort of lived on as a VHS cult classic to those who cared, but uh, has really had uh, its day in the last five, ten years. It's been restored, it's been seen, it's been written about, uh, and people have come to, um, you know, really dig and, and admire this this film, and I'm one of those people. Um It is the third film Hopper directed after Easy Rider and the debacle, of course, of the last movie in 1971, um, which killed his directorial career. Uh, And, of course, Hopper himself had a lot of trouble with alcohol and drugs and abuse and and all kinds of, of just, you know, troublesome stuff in his life, especially throughout the 1970s. And that's the state he was in when he was cast in a Canadian tax shelter production about a young teenage girl who was going to uh, see a psychologist and get better. After two weeks, the producers decided that the footage being shot by the uh, first-time director, the screenwriter, uh, Leonard Yacher, who wrote the script with his wife, Brenda Nielsen, uh, he wasn't cutting it. And the producers were ready to shut down production when Dennis Hopper stepped in and said, why don't you let me rewrite it? I'll start directing on Monday. We've got three and a half weeks. We've got all the locations. Uh, Let's make a Dennis Hopper movie. Now, uh, that's exactly what happened. (laughs) It is uh, a very uncompromising and raw Uh, sort of family portrait of this extremely dysfunctional family centered around CB, the 15-year-old daughter, uh, Cindy Barnes, but everyone calls her CB, played by Linda Mons, the great young actress of the late 70s, uh, just off her appearance in Days of Heaven. Um, And... She is uh, a very angry, very uh, (laughs) disturbed, uh, and rightfully so, uh, teenager growing up in, uh, it's like outside of Vancouver, but it's never really named, but it's very blue collar, it's very poor, it's very working class. It's kind of got like a cowboy suburbs vibe going on. Um, And we learn in the opening that uh, a few years ago, Uh, She had been in an accident with her father, played by Dennis Hopper, who was a truck driver and an alcoholic who crashed his semi-truck into a school bus full of children with her in it, not the school bus, in the truck. They both survived. Many of the school children did not. He's been in prison, uh, and she's been, you know, sort of hating him and worshipping him all the time that he has been away. Uh, Meanwhile, she lives with her heroin addict mother, Kathy, played by Sharon Farrell. Uh, Fans of Larry Cohen will recognize her, of course, from It's Alive, but she was in a lot of shit. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, hell yeah. (laughs) Uh, And that's the the family, right? Uh, The parents, the daughter, 
and the extremely fucked up relationship between all of them and the abuse, psychological and sexual, the drug use, uh, and all that stuff is really, yeah, the, the meat of, of this film and certainly something that Hopper uh, knew all too well. And this is before he got clean. So this set was, you know, uh, Sharon Farrell joked that he was their star or one of their stars, their director and their dealer. And that every day he woke up at 5 a.m. and they all got high and started writing that day's pages together because they had no other choice to, to make this movie, you know, not what it was, this failed TV movie about a psychologist, into something real, raw, and interesting in that unhinged Dennis Hopper way. And he was often... Uh, late to set. He was often, you know, procuring drugs when he should have been directing. Uh, and yet, the end result uh, is really, yeah, a, an unsettling and really incredible film that I think if you see, uh, it will never leave you. It will haunt you. Um, and yeah, there's anger everywhere, but in particular, I think the Linda Mons performance, of course, uh, is a tour de force. There's nothing like it. Her uh, sadness, her anger, her aimlessness, you know, all of that captured in this punk spirit, which was sort of rewritten specifically for her and her interest in the then burgeoning sort of punk rock movement. So there's another interesting aspect to this that we'll tease out, which is uh, this is just a remake of Rebel Without a Cause. But now Dennis Hopper is old. Not old, but older, right? So we have this guy, this rebel, Hopper himself, who knew James Dean, you know, partied with him back in the 50s. He's now sort of reconciling, I think, with that legacy, what that means, rebellion, counterculture, and trying to understand punk rock, I think, from his perspective as a guy who participated in these countercultural movements. So there's a lot of interesting stuff going on, I think, with Hopper's sort of iconography and where he came from and who he was. Um, so yeah, anyway, I could go on and on, but uh, I should mention the title, of course, uh, comes from Neil Young, Hopper's friend, who uh, provided some songs for the movie, and that's actually part of CB's character. She actually does like Neil Young, uh, and we'll get into all the fun music stuff uh, in here as well, but uh, yeah, that's, uh, I guess that's out of the blue, yeah. Thank you, Marsh. Uh, thank you both. And of course... Before we get too deep into it, thank you so much to DNEC for yeah. suggesting such a vibrant yeah. topic. And again, folks, feel free to pitch us uh, any other suggestions you have for upcoming topics, upcoming weeks. Uh, we welcome them. This is uh, hopefully the first of, of many viewer-submitted topics to come. Um, with those niceties out of the way, let's, let's get into the shit. Jeez, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this was, yes, a very blessed double feature. You know, we often chart, you know, blessed or cursed. And, and this is indeed a very blessed double feature in the sense that these two films have so much in common. Uh, they really are uh, a, 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 a completely spiritually mentally and emotionally linked double feature in my view. And even with 
a lot of the the actual like plot elements. And I guess the best way to start is by their their sort of like opening theses, I guess you could call them. Um, both of these films begin with what I would describe as shocking violence. Shocking violence. Very much so. I had not seen either of these films before. I'd certainly heard of Out of the Blue, but I had never uh, jumped on the 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 band the bus. wagon. The bus? Yeah, the bus. Oh, God. <laughs> the bus in recent years. So I was very... I went in cold. I didn't really look up either film going into it. I just wanted to to be awash in, in the angry vibes of these films. And I have to say, they both um, set a tone immediately in slightly different ways, but within images of death and violence. Uh, and, and completing the films, like those images became to me, like I said, these sort of, you know, thesis statements about the world, the world in which these characters are going to try their best to survive and to exist. But we see the world laid out in both of these films in whew, bloody ways. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget when I saw Out of the Blue for the first time, not really knowing what I was getting into. At that point, I had, of course, seen Easy Rider. I think I had seen the last movie, which I wasn't a fan of when I caught it. <laughs> like, the, you know, the great majority of people who actually got to see it when it came out. Um, but I think upon if I revisit it, I'm sure I'll find a lot to really love about it. And there were things I, I definitely did. But Out of the Blue was like a real revelation for me. I remember being like totally floored. I, I caught like a really cool screening in Chicago from the Chicago Film Society, a 35-millimeter print. It was gorgeous. It was pristine. And for that film to open with Dennis Hopper speeding down the road in his trunk, in his truck, pounding whiskey, Linda Mons dressed as a clown, because it's I think it's Halloween at the beginning of the film. She's, she's dressed as a clown. She's bouncing up and down on the seat next to him. And then, yeah, there's a school bus full of children also in costume. To have them just completely eviscerated in the first five minutes of this movie to say like this is where we're starting are we ever going to hit this again at any other point throughout the film is like an incredibly high bar to set and they do of course reach that level basically throughout i mean the film registers at like an extreme pitch so much but yeah, and I remembered, I, I think, too, one of the things about this film I, I was so struck is, like, it is, like, a really beautiful-looking sequence. It's shot kind of around golden hour when that bus full of uh, kitties is, like, completely wrecked and destroyed. And it's, like, really nice-looking. And this whole film is, like, very, very nice-looking. Um, and that contrast it was so intense for me, and I was thinking about, yeah the world in which this film is representing and kind of like standing up against in a sense where Dennis Hopper, of course, someone who was a part of the Hollywood system and always seen as like sort of the bad boy. Here he is using some of those resources for something that looks so beautiful, but is so violent. And it's like, you have these ideas of what families and troubled teens look like in movies. I'm going to show you a real troubled family uh, (laughs) and what that might actually feel like. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that, that bus crash uh was 
unreal for what I'm assuming was a very modestly budgeted film. I mean, that is one of the craziest uh, wrecks I've seen in a movie outside of those not directed by George fucking Miller. I mean, that was just straight out of Mad Max, just this semi exploding through a school bus filled with fucking children. Like you said, I mean, what a way to start your film. It's shocking. It's in your face. It's extremely aggressive. It's horrifying, but it is damn well executed. I gotta say like, there's even, and I, I, we come back to the crash several times, you know, throughout the film, you know, her kind of reliving the memories. And, and I can't remember if it's in the opening or if it's in one of the, the later memories where she goes back. But there's even like this sort of like, you know, they, they cover it obviously from multiple angles. But one of the angles has just like a child like dangling out of like the front door, you know, that you would get on as a kid. You walk up that sort of like yeah. open swinging door. And I just remember seeing this like, Kitty with his backpack on, like, dangling out of that thing. Like, it is graphic. And, like, again, you you know, in talking about this whole, like, bad boy of Hollywood thing, like, obviously one of, like, the biggest taboos often is, like, children being killed on screen. And this pulls no punches. No holds are barred here for... Mr. Hopper. And maybe that's also because he's working in Canada and <laughs> things are a little bit loose, but man. And you know, again, not to be outdone, like uh, by any stretch of the imagination, like there is an elaborate sequence, which you've already kind of introduced in, in your discussion of the film, Ryan, with, with, uh, Inchung, where we're just in a slaughterhouse, just watching pigs getting processed, getting <clears throat> slaughtered, getting, torn apart, cut apart, you know? And it isn't even just the images. The soundtrack of that opening sequence is so grating. It is so intense. It is so upsetting. But again, I think also meant to sort of establish a tone, you know, in terms of life and how valuable any single life could be in a world like this where we are treated perhaps all of us like lambs to the slaughter by cruel systems by a cruel unforgiving world right yeah i mean the sound of those pigs squealing does sound quite a lot like what the bus being obliterated sounds like at the beginning of out of the blue they're both like really high-pitched really horrifying noises that kind of like claw into your spine while you see it and it's funny that inseong opens with that restoration note about them saying like hey we did our damnedest with the sound here like there was some tough hurdles that we had to to get over with this restoration but it's funny that they even bring that up because i think the sound in the movie is you know it's rough at times but it's to me it seems very intentional this like really abrasive direct sound when things are very loud purposefully extremely loud and it really is at the beginning of the film i mean for that to be the world we're stepping into like this is this is the philippines you know this is lino i mean i forgot to mention you know lino braca uh with this film he did not make uh 
Imelda Marcos very happy. <laughs> you know, she she did her damnedest to to stop this film from being released widely in the Philippines. It's something that primarily played outside of the country. Uh, she was not a fan with how the the country was represented, and to think of like this being how it starts. You know, this is martial law in the Philippines. You are pigs led to the slaughter. Brutal. Interestingly. The Canadian government was not a fan of Out of the Blue, and in fact, they revoked (laughs) their Canadian status as a production because it was a Dennis Hopper film, and I believe they cited like his unsavory character, among other things, (laughs) Um, but they, Canada disowned the film, so like, they couldn't get the tax credits that they wanted, so the film, which should have had a guaranteed like money back, you know, in mean, that whole system Whoa. was ended up being a total loss. And that's why it had trouble uh, getting released. It's also why Raymond Burr is in the movie. Raymond Burr is Canadian. And they actually shot 15 scenes with Raymond Burr. And Hopper didn't have the guts to tell him that he wasn't going to use any of it. Yeah. They just had to go through the motions because it was the original script. It was a Canadian actor. All right, Raymond. You're the psychologist, and Hopper knew, like, we're only going to use, like, the two scenes that they used in the film. Yeah, because, you know, <laughs> from what I from what I did read after the film in my research, you know, it, it apparently with the original screenplay, the, the center of the film was supposed to be the relationship between this young girl and this child psychologist played by Raymond Burr. Yeah. And so... Very clear once Hopper gets in there and starts sort of reworking everything that like that just got completely brushed aside. And I was like joking around, too, because I was just like, you know, this girl's so fucked up. They got to hire Perry Mason to straighten her out, you know, because we can't even do it. He can't even get the job done. (laughs) But you know what's funny to me, too? You saying that like he had no idea that this was going to this was what was going to happen because like I was like watching his performance and I didn't do the research beforehand. But I did know just anecdotally that this was like a hopper kind of like he got in there and started reworking everything. And I kept looking at at Raymond Burr's performance as like very checked out and like and obviously he could be checked out because he's just in like a Canadian fucking tax shelter thing, just collecting a paycheck. But like he seemed like the energy he was putting out was very much like a guy that was like, my part used to be so much goddamn bigger. So I even if they did shoot some scenes with me, I got to feel like he yeah. was like, this is not the fucking movie I agreed to be in. Like sure. what is going on? Or <laughs> that he just is like, I mean, Raymond Burr, like, that dude, if he wasn't making Perry Mason, he was hanging out in his garden. He was a very chill, very, very chill dude. And I got to imagine. Sounded like a very unchill set, to yeah, be honest. That he was like, just get me out of here. I'll do my scenes and I'm going home. I do not want to be, you know, doing blow at 5 a.m. Yeah. reworking the script every day. <laughs> but I think that's like, you know, just like in Inchang, like what makes it special is the milieu and is is all the people filling that milieu and and you know they're not identical but like the american slash canadian blue collar setting of uh out of the blue is not that far off from you know the philippines obviously philippines is more extreme in terms of its poverty in this these these milieus but like yeah these films are about uh, people who don't have jobs and who drink all day. I mean, like, that's yeah. 
part of the darkness in both of these films, especially men who drink all day. Uh, and it may or may not be their fault whether they have a job, you know, but like, yeah, these are extreme conditions uh, that both of these characters have to survive in. And I think it's so like pointed too that like the way Braca introduces us, introduces us to her it's like after this, after the slaughterhouse, oh my God, uh, then we get a <laughs> montage of like children, like playing in garbage and like just, you know, your, your city slums shots. And then we just see in Chang, like crossing a bridge in the deep background in a yellow shirt and the camera starts to follow her, you know, this sort of like diamond in the rough, you know, in this like horrible place beauty you know and, and he follows her you know and i think there's a similar vibe in the way that like cb navigates this just dead end world you know it's like no shit you're attracted to punk even if you're 15 and don't know what it means like <laughs> you hate your life you know right. you hate this place in particular yeah, there's obvious similarities between the milieus in both of these places, but even more like the thing linking these films is just how it feels to be a teenage girl in these milieus and having to walk through it because that's so much of what both of these movies are is both of the primary characters just walking around and surviving in these milieus that they're trying to escape. They're both movies of people yearning to escape and and to flee. And... You know, one thing I was thinking about, too, with how these spaces are kind of represented, I, I had forgotten how much Out of the Blue kind of shifts styles, and I remembered that was something I liked so much about Inxiang, the way its style kind of changes on a scene-by-scene -scene basis. Because, yes, when we're seeing the slums, when we're seeing the garbage, it's full of non-professional actors in Inxiang, it feels neorealist, you know, it's it's raw, it's real, life is actually happening on the screen in front of us. There's only so much that could potentially even be controlled. And then when we're in the home, it feels very classically melodramatic. Yeah, it's like a soap opera. Exactly, yeah, and it feels like he's playing with both of those styles to elicit different effects. And I had forgotten how out of the blue, right, so much of it feels so raw. Uh, it feels like kind of like tossed off quick when she's wandering around. But then there are other moments where there are these classic Hollywood styled sequence shots that go on forever and you don't even realize it. It's by the time a scene has ended and the shot has finished that you stop and you think, were there cuts within that? Because the camera is constantly moving and reframing. And the way it's all blocked, it's no wonder, of course, Dennis Hopper, you know, got his start working with people who were, you know, masters of craft, right? And I, I and to me, it's a very similar effect of what you see in Inxiang, where it hops between, you know, soap opera melodrama and then like rough neorealism out of the blues doing the same thing. It is, it has, to me, honestly, technical wizardry coupled with punk on the street photography. Which is also crazy because I read you know, there's sort of dispute over this. I read three different timelines for the production of Inchang, and I read Philip Lopate in the Criterion essay says it was shot in seven days. 
Someone else, I read that it was 11 days, you know? But, like, <laughs> everyone generally agrees that, like, the ratio was basically one-to-one. So even for how melodramatic it is, and, and sometimes, yeah, sort of soapy, sometimes it's kind of obvious the way the actors are theatrically kind of telegraphing things, but, like, that was probably the only take, which is crazy to think about. Um, and I read, you know, sort of like Fassbinder, he had an acting troupe that he worked with on television. And so it was one of those things where it's like he's worked with, like, the actors who are acting like, yeah, of course, we've done this before. We've done stage plays before. We've done TV before, right? But just one take, you know? I mean, like, that's fucking yeah. mind-blowing. Like, Out of the Blue was a three-and-a-half-week shoot, which is nothing. Uh, and then we have Braca, like, yeah, arguably seven to 11 days or something, like, doing this whole production. I mean, just from a filmmaking perspective, you know? I'm just sitting there going, like... Yeah, and it's not what? Uh, <laughs> yeah, crazy. It's hearing that timeline too. It, it should in no way sort of minimize, as Ryan was trying to describe, some of the like uh, complexity and you know impressive like visual choreography that's also like taking place in some of those shots. You know, you describing this filmmaker who I was totally unfamiliar with because uh, I'd never seen this film before. I'd never seen anything else he'd made um, as a sort of like Filipino Fassbender is I think a very like uh, apt, very astute observation um, because like Fassbender, something I've noticed uh, Lino Bracca also loves a good mirror and there are some amazing yeah. like deep focus shots of mirrors and characters being framed by very small, very small mirrors. And those mirrors play a big part in the mise-en-scene, in like the, the dynamism of, you know, what's happening in a particular scene, you know, uh, like, like Fassbender, the mirrors are, are obviously a way to flex, but there's also, a lot going on there about characters, about duplicitous natures, about things happening behind people's backs. And so, yes, to be pulling off such a fast shooting schedule, but also to be able to to do that, to set up very complex shots uh, is uh, incredible. It's stunning, really. Yeah, I mean, there's dolly moves in some of those interiors. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I too, I also read that essay. And when I read that it was a, a, a potentially seven days, that is shocking. Huh. It's, it's like outrageous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's like actual staging and staging in depth and, and camera movements. And there's quite a lot of striking lighting in, in the film as well. Like the night sequences in the house, I mean, are, are very expressionistic. Oh, yeah. um, it actually remind, you know, I think both of these films in my mind have like their, their North star, right? Like I said, with rebel without a cause, but I was watching this film and thinking like, this is like Los Olvidados. This is like Buñuel, just this sordid, <laughs> This sordid, horrible melodrama in the slums, you know? Um, I don't know where I was going with that. But, um. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like very cinematic. I mean, both of yeah. these movies are cinematic in their own way. Uh, in the case of Out of the Blue, yes, 
it's clear to see a lot of those, I, I think, like warring uh, influences on Dennis Hopper, you know, as someone who had spent a lot of time in the studio system, but also was considered part of the the new Hollywood vanguard, you know? So many people like to say that it was Easy Rider that really changed things. And whether or not I want to say it particularly was Easy Rider, like Dennis Hopper was a huge part of that spirit and that mindset of, hey, let's strip things down. Let's, let's, you know, get out of the studio. Let's be raw. Let's, let's allow more improvisation in our, in our filming, in our, in our sequences with our actors and that sort of thing. And, and you do see them, I feel like battling in this film, but it's not a battle that's, uh, you know, uh, uh, like it's not a battle that that he's losing. It's a battle that he, that I think he's ultimately like winning. And again, I think it speaks to so much of of that, like that that torment inside of the characters. You know, this idea of like being in a world that doesn't seem too interested in whether or not you exist, and trying to still shine trying to still become a star a rock star of some kind even if no one is showing up to to see you perform right even if you aren't selling out arenas there's still this this sort of bravado this go for broke spirit in the film and i think yeah for him particularly like this film like shows i think his sensitivity like so much, you know? And I think part of why that sensitivity could sort of be lost on people is because his his sensitivity is like shrouded in like anger. It's a very like in-your-face sensitivity, if that makes any sense, you know? And I sure. again I think it's it's why it's so so uh amazing, so wonderful that like he met Linda Mons and was just kind of like oh yeah, this kid's special. Like I'm basically going to let her ghost direct my movie, you know, like I'm going to, I'm going to take her lead. I'm going to let her sort of take me on this walk, you know, this, this journey. Well, and he's also going to cast himself as the, you know, like uh, the worst person in the world who over the course of 90 minutes, you uh, somehow feel bad for. Yeah. I mean, it's like ridiculous. I mean, you know, maybe you don't, I do like I, I there's a the sadness and a darkness in the performance, but also in Hopper um, that is, yeah, so fucking real. Like uh, Nick Pinkerton wrote a great piece about this movie and he calls it like in many ways, it's like an exorcism for Dennis Hopper yeah. because he gets to fucking crucify himself yeah. in this movie. Like I'm a piece of shit. I'm an abusive asshole. I'm all these things, you know? And then he gets revenge on himself. Yeah. You know? Like, yeah, dude. I mean, it's like, it's very, you know, like I can see for him, you know, and he is a, a student of art, a student of literature, a well-read man, a, a very thoughtful man. And to me, this like felt very also like, you know, Eugene O'Neill in its structure, particularly through his character, you know, because the first half of the film is really about like, you know, 
once dad gets out, everything's going to be great. And he's kind of aside from this opening car crash, you know, and, and you've described the sort of mixed emotions at first that we see through CB, like we do believe her when she's sort of like, Hey, my life is going to be so much better once dad gets out. You know, it's very, this, this sort of like Iceman cometh vibe, right? We're all going to get well when daddy comes home, you know, when he gets let out of prison and we look forward to that, you know, they have that like really, really like heartbreaking emotional scene in the prison when they go to visit him and he like basically cuts it short and throws them out because he's like breaking down. He's so upset, you know, he's so sad. He's so, so depressed and, and, and he sees the beauty in his one time family now torn apart by this this tragedy. I'm really sorry, you know, that I haven't been in touch with you, you know. I, I don't really have no excuse, you know, because uh, I could, you know, I could say I don't write, you know, which is true. But I didn't really want you to see me any like this, you know. But you're old enough now, you see. And, uh, well, this is, this is where I've been for the last five years, you know. <laughs> So take a good look. Now, obviously, like self-inflicted tragedy, he was a drunk, but still, yeah. <laughs> you know, you almost get the sense, oh, well, alcoholism is a disease, you know, it's like poor guy, you know, he just needed help and look at this horrible accident and he learned his lesson. And when he gets out, you know, he's going to fix everything, <laughs> right? And everything's going to be great. And see, that's the thing, again, like connecting this to like Hopper himself, you know, it's almost as if like he's ironically sort of playing with that, you know, especially over the debacle of the last movie in the seventies and this idea like, Hey, once I get out of Hollywood prison, right. When I get my comeback, I'm going to really show everybody what it's all about, but it's like, he gets let out and what does he do? He goes right back to his old ways. You know, he yeah. cannot there's not even suppress a, that. There's not even a pretense of reform. You know, he's out, he's drinking, he's driving. I mean, one of the great just like long takes that Ryan was describing earlier is his coming home party yeah. where clearly they were just having a happening, you know? <laughs> yeah. uh, and then the camera just like wanders through as he's sort of like introducing or reintroducing himself to people. But he's already fucking lit up, oh, yeah. you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. That, that's like one of the most truly shocking sequences in all of cinema, honestly, when he does come home, because you think like after an opening scene like that, to have experienced that in your life, you know, having like such a tragic drunk driving accident where you kill a bunch of children <laughs> that when <laughs> their school bus in half, right? Know, it's like this guy has a family, he has a child, and he's coming back home. And yet, the one of the first things we see him do after a night of drinking is when he's confronted with one of the fathers of a child who he killed he reacts in anger and rage and is cruel to him, yeah. you know, with the encouragement from his buddy who is just like, you know, <laughs> kind of like poking and prodding and steering him in that direction. He has like some terrible enablers in his life. But yeah, that, I mean, that was one of those things too, because this movie, you do start to, you do feel for him because of how impassioned Dennis Hopper's performance is, but it's like how, 
how evil can a man be <laughs> to be like unrepentant in the face of like a grieving father whose child that you so recklessly killed? Again, I, you know, it's like you, you could almost read that moment as like that, that, uh, you know, very, very, very bereaved father, that, that very upset man who's specifically just going there to like confront him, like now that he's out and the way he handles him, it's like that dad was like, you know, one of the, the, the Hollywood executives who greenlit the last movie, <laughs> you know? And he's like, I heard you're back in town, you son of a bitch, you know? Like, you know what I mean? I'm gonna keep my eye on you. You're not gonna be pulling into this bullshit again. And what does he do? Like, the guy's confronting him and he, he, he snatches, Dennis Hopper snatches a bottle of whiskey from the table, cuts this guy short by standing up and saying, I'm a motherfucking asshole, you know that? I did five fucking years, you know? In prison. And there were a lot of other kids in there besides your son. Now, am I gonna have to meet every fucking asshole like you, man? Look, I'm an asshole, you see this? You see me? You see that? But I'm not a motherfucking dumb asshole! Because there's enough here for two drinks. Now, how about you sit down? And have one with me and we'll just let this all pass. You know, the guy's like, fuck you, man. Like, but yeah, like sort of reading that as like this guy from from Hollywood that's sort of like, I don't trust you. You might be out, but you ain't you ain't you ain't clear in my books, man. I mean, the way he reacts, like one of the first things he says is, uh, am I going to have to eat it? Meet every asshole like you, meaning every <laughs> grieving yeah. parent of the children <laughs> who died, like crazy overreaction. But again, I think that's what's so beautiful about his performance is that it's also just not a stretch to be like, yes, like this man cannot face reality and how could right he? and how could mm -hmm. he of course the minute he's out of prison he's fucking lit up you think that guy could live with anything like he pretends like he's it's fine he's a bully he's this tough guy but like he's so fucked up man you know oh yeah so that like... guy is just like the suffering <laughs> internally in that man because that's what hopper's performance does so well like yeah. this is a man who is just like ripped to shreds on the inside and it's just like soaking his organs with booze in order to endure and it was it was you know there are like so many uncanny similarities between these these two films and one of the ones i was thinking about while watching not that there's even a reason to like make a, a judgment or assessment on this but it's like really who these films have two of just the worst men that are like have ever been in a movie you know you've got dennis hopper who's just like an unrepentant drunk who murdered a school bus full of children and is like giggling his way through his return on his way home he's a sexual abuser and then we have dotto in inseong who is the the younger stud who moves into inseong's home he's like the local tough in one of the write-ups of the film i saw it referred that he was like a local gigolo which i don't know if that was like just them suggesting like that's why he's taking up with an older woman because i didn't notice anything in the film suggesting that but regardless he has this like really threatening sexual energy that he brings into that home and he's sleeping with Inseong's mother throughout the film and then eventually one night does rape Inseong in like an extremely brutal sequence and yeah like and that guy's just like still living there and gaslighting everyone around him and I, I when I finished this double feature I was like man 
who is the shittier guy? <laughs> like, and again, it's probably Dennis Hopper, but like, good, good. Well, it's grief. not a contest. Well, that's yeah. what I was about to say. Yeah, it's not a pissing contest <laughs> here. But, but, but Ryan, I mean, I would take it a, a step further. I mean, we've already kind of talked about you know how these movies are similar in that we have these two young women who are are merely just you know trying to to get through their day to day. But in order to do so, they have to both constantly run a gauntlet, if you will, of uh, terrible men. It isn't just that there's sort of like one villainous dude in each movie. I mean, there's a lot of very bad, shitty, predatory men who who let both of these characters down and take advantage of them. I mean, it's not just Dado. I mean, yes, Dado is a piece of shit, but so is Babot, if oh. that was his name, right? He fails her, too, the in a worst. very big way. You know, his betrayal, I mean, yeah. sexual assault notwithstanding, which is an unforgivable crime, but, like, Babot also, like just does such a horrible, horrible thing to her. I mean, he's a villain too, you know? It's true. I mean, he's, he's maybe just a, a, a a shitty dude, not necessarily like a, a criminal, but, but even earlier, there's a, there's another guy, you know, I think it's her cousin who's living at the house and one of these drunk, layabouts and and he he gropes a woman and nearly starts a riot in their small like section of the the slum that they're living in i mean just men are bad news in both of these films yeah and i mean this this is kind of like reminding me to what i think are the great successes of both of these two films because like as we're describing it right these both of these movies kind of sound like unendurably bleak. I think of like what we've talked about so far, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if someone walked away thinking like, wow, these sound like deeply nihilistic and distressing films. And I think that the reason they both succeed is because of how smartly cast they are with the central teenage woman, like at the center of both of them. And it's actually one of the like crazy comparisons. They were both the... the woman who plays Inseong, Hilda Cornell, and then Linda Mons were the same age when both of these films were made. They were both 19 years old. Um, and I don't know how old Inseong's supposed to be, but Linda Mons is playing like younger than uh, she actually was. But they both bring something really unique that like help us move through these movies because like Linda Mons has this anger and intensity and ferociousness and just wild punk attitude that gives so many scenes of despair so much character and a a unique form of joy i mean she does find a lot of happiness in in the darkness in this movie i must have been all found i could have took you any day what are you laughing at Hey, Stevie, come on, I love you. Just yeah, you love me, my foot. Just take it easy, sweetie. Just take it easy. Wait till my father gets out of prison. He's gonna wipe you out, you motherfucker. Yeah, go home, CB. And then with Inseong, it, it, it's a very different performance, right? I mean, she's she's just trying to endure, but you know, Marsh, you had mentioned her sort of being like the diamond in the rough. He, Lino Bracca, I think, is like very conscious of that because you know there are some. 
again, like a lot of non-professionals, a lot of people you would never classify as A-list Hollywood actors, right? Like on screen in this movie, but she is like this goddess. And he, I think, is using that in an interesting way throughout the film. He's like very conscious of, of her beauty and the way that she like attracts people around her, even as much as just his camera, how his camera responds to her. Her presence in the film reminds us that there is still hope that we can get out of here because when she's talking about trying to find ways of escaping, you know, she's treating people with kindness even when she's receiving nothing but cruelty uh, left and right throughout much of the film. Well, I think that's, you know, speaks to the religious aspect of, of Braca's self and filmmaking mm. and religion in the Philippines, Christianity in the Philippines in general. I think... In Chang is uh, a saint, you know, <laughs> like uh, yeah. a sort of almost, you know, Brissanian type kind of like, you know, Catholic Christian, like she's uh, she's innocence, you know, uh, right. not so innocent, certainly by the time the, f- the film ends. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's all about that sort of like sins and, and that sort of like Christian uh, sort of reading of it to me anyway. And then obviously, yeah. like with Hopper, uh, it's so much different. Um, but in particular, you know, what's so cool, I think, about Out of the Blue in Hopper's exploration of you know, rebellion in 1980 is that, uh, you know, CB finds escape in punk rock, right? Like that's, you know, the, the great sequence of the film, the joyous sequence of the film is when she runs off to Vancouver and goes while she has a weird encounter with a taxi driver. Uh, (laughs) Whoa. Uh, but then, you know, she goes to this punk show and she meets the band and she hangs out and it's really just this amazing moment where it's like, she clearly has never met any punks. Like she's never been anywhere. She doesn't, she just lives in this small town. Her world is so small. And when it opens up for her and she's able to experience that, like it is incredible, you know? Um, so there are those moments like that, but even, even like, uh, you know, Don, Dennis Hopper, it's like, he's manic. Like, there are scenes when he's super funny and super loving yeah. uh, as well. You know, it's not just a downer with him yeah. uh, and, and Kathy, the mom. Like, they have their good moments, but they have their bad moments because they're both addicts. So they're, yeah. like, totally fucking manic. And there are moments of love, just as there's often moments of hate, sometimes followed one after the other, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, At and the and same it, time. Yeah, well, for sure. And again, that is... Such a testament to like Hopper's the the depth that he is uh, uh, seeking with his character because you're right like sort of I think the way we've described him you know uh, he he might sound on the surface as this sort of like caricature of the bad abusive dad but like he has these moments of clarity that you can see in his eyes, on his face, these moments where he suddenly seems to just kind of like come out of his haze, out of his like manic state and be like, I got to get my act together, man. Like I got to, I got to get my shit going on here. I had a beautiful wife. I had a wonderful daughter. And what the fuck's happened? You know, like he's got his buddy 
uh, Charlie. Played, Charlie, played by Don Gordon, who is, you know, again, just a sort of like devil on everyone's shoulders. It's revealed oh, yeah. he's been providing heroin to CB's mom and also sleeping with her on the side. But like he's sort of trying to also kind of egg uh, Dennis Hopper on, you know, once he's out, he's like, Hey, I got my buddy back. Now we can get back to the real wild times we've had, but you'll see in several exchanges that they have that like Dennis Hopper suddenly just like, man, this can't be it. This can't be it. Right. They're like at one of those honky tonk bars and you know, Don Gordon's character, Charlie's just kind of like, man, aren't we having a good time? And you see, like, Hopper just struggling there, and he's just like... Bullshit, we're having a fucking good time. Is this a fucking good time to you, man? This is a fucking good time to you? Give me a break. You know, and then, obviously, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but the in the, the horrifying conclusion, you see that same sort of roller coaster of emotions at play with Dennis Hopper's character that, again, doesn't make him necessarily what I would call like a sympathetic character, but it makes him a human character. It makes him more than just like a, an evil villain. Like this is a disturbed man. This is a very broken person, but Hopper is still able to, to show us that there is a person inside there, that this is a, a lived in being and not just a, a, a role that was written on a page. Uh, but yeah, I mean like to that end, like both films take us through some wild, wild swings with our characters. You know, you both were, were describing Inshung as this, yes, almost like sort of saintly character. But I think what makes the film truly this kind of like angry critique is her turn. I would almost describe like her heel turn that, that she sort of looks at the world and goes, okay, this is a cruel, cruel, cruel place. This is a cruel, violent place. So yeah, I'm going to lean into it and I'm going to weaponize it against itself. You know, that, that she doesn't just stay up on the cross, but she gets down, you know, and she uses the wood to to whittle a stake that she's going to drive through the heart yeah. of the people who wronged her in a very <laughs> devious and, you know, uh, calculated way. You know, yeah. it isn't her ultimate revenge against the world isn't what I would describe as a sort of like crime of passion. She is smart. She's no. intelligent. She is able to put all of that together into her grand. And I think you described it in your intro as an almost Shakespearean, uh, Shakespearean vengeance. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the craziest comparisons between these films is like at their core, they're both like secret revenge films, yes. films that you don't realize have almost like an elaborate revenge background until you hit the end of them, you know? And I mean, we could go over those details. Like, I don't know if we need to get to the ends of these movies, but yeah, I mean, that is throughout Inseong when we're watching her sleep with Dotto, when she is then, like actively having a relationship with this man who raped her and then gaslit her mother into thinking that it was Inseong's fault for, 
you know, he lies about her sleeping in the nude in the house and casting glances at him and that he's just a man. Like, how, how could he possibly, you know, hold himself back? You know, she let me on. Exactly. And then when she's playing along for so long, you're like, what the hell is happening here? Like, what is her game? And it's not until the final moments that we do see what her game is. And I think one of the most remarkable performance in Inseong is from Mona Lisa. Oh, hell yeah. The mother. Because that is a performance that has like so many shades of gray in another in a film that otherwise kind of has like a bluntness with a lot of these figures. Like she's the hopper of the film, you know. I no, I definitely agree <laughs> because like Dotto, you know, he's the gross, horrible, you know, toxic man. But it's so clear; it's abundantly clear at any given moment what his game is, what he's playing. We know exactly what he wants and how he's manipulating everyone, but. The first time that Dotto grabs Inseong before he actually rapes her, when the mother comes home, she senses something's wrong. And it's like the first time in the film that she expresses a different sort of concern, right? Because she is, as as he describes her, he says that she runs her mouth like a Gatling gun. And at many points throughout the film, she is just like actively scolding everyone. The whole town complains about her sharp tongue. <laughs> right, right. And when she comes home and sees Inseong uncomfortable... Clearly, after Dado had done something, that's like one of the first moments where she doesn't say anything at all. And she gets this great melodramatic close-up, you know? And it's it's seeing there's something so incredible about taking someone who's clearly like a golden age, like notable screen actress for that audience and putting her in this role. I mean, because it's one of the first scenes we see her and she's just like pissing in front of her daughter in, in the home while like In Seung's cleaning. You know, it's like a huge subversion of like, okay, here's this favorite, you know, icon of the Filipino cinema that you all know and love. And here I have her pissing in squalor in front of her daughter that she's scolding at the same time. And then, yeah, later in the film, we get we do get all these moments where she's seeing things and there's so much going on internally with her performance. Yeah, she really is the Dennis Hoffer of the movie. I guess that's like where yeah, I was going well, with that. Yeah, yeah, because she has just like so many layers of psychological damage from her failed marriage and, and like projecting yeah. that onto her daughter. And just, yeah, I mean, she's a maddening, hypocritical character and it drives everyone around her crazy, uh, especially in, in their home, right? Because she's uh, very promiscuous. And then she just like berates Inchang for even just like walking with a guy in town, you know, mm-hmm. like I was going to I was going to bring this up earlier too. speaking about things that are not people's ideas of a good time. Uh, her <laughs> shitty boyfriend always wants to go to the movies so he can just like finger her or whatever. Uh, and she hates Inchang's boyfriend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she hates him and that shit. I mean, like. That both films do have cinema scenes, which is funny. I wrote um, down. I wrote down my favorite. <laughs> my favorite line in, in Shang was just when Baboat's trying to get her to go to the movies, and she just says, "I don't like the way you behave at the movies." Yeah. <laughs> Dude, 
incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's indecent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That that is a good moment. I I forgot I forgot about that cinema scene and and out of the blue. I love that space they have. I I, I was so curious about it. It seems like They're they like have the a, upper deck. Yeah, the box. Yeah, the they, private box. <laughs> yeah, it's like glass got like in, a booth. Though. Yeah. Yeah, it's like oh, you could smoke in there and you can like chat with your buds yeah. you know like you can be loud the people in the main auditorium won't hear you yeah that's for who <laughs> wants to yuck it up during the movie and they certainly <laughs> yeah. are yucking it up during the movie right her and her i mean how can friends. you not when you're watching chaplin you know yeah is that what they're watching they're watching yeah. chaplin i hate happy endings where's the villain <laughs> <laughs> when's he going <laughs> look i'm crying <laughs> it's amazing yeah man yeah what a voice it's it's so remarkable like watching and listening to her on screen you know i think like some of the only moments where this film doesn't really work uh but are still like amusing and fun is when dennis hopper was like trying to fit the lyrics of out of the blue into scenes of the film you know where she's like she puts that ice cream on that girl's face the blue ice cream and i think in that moment she says like oh you're out of the blue and into the black or like something yeah, like that yeah. and it's like it's it's like so stupid but it's awesome come over here do you understand i never liked your face rip i should rearrange it for you i hear your dad's working in the garbage dump cb What's it to you? You don't scare me. It's a punk rocker. Should never scare you. Here you go. Disgusting. What do you think you're doing? I painted your face blue. Looks better that way. And if you don't shut up and get out of here, I'm going to take you out of the blue and put you into the black. You know, it just really works. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, on the one hand, yeah, it's goofy. And reportedly, Hopper was, like, driving around Vancouver when he heard that song on the radio and was like, I got to call up Neil and see if I can use this or whatever. So it was totally just, like, random inspiration for him. But there's uh, there's something that Pinkerton talks about in his essay on the film, uh, which is, like, what's really interesting about CB's character and the fact that she would quote Neil Young, right? Because she also says, like, kill all hippies and, like, shit like that. And Neil Young, kind mm-hmm. of a hippie figure, uh, certainly more than, than a punk figure, right? Um, but the point that Pinkerton makes is that, like, someone this isolated is just going to have their own constellation of icons, yeah. right? Because she's obsessed with... Yeah with Elvis Mm -hmm. more than anyone. Right. And she, you know, she says a lot of sort of punk catchphrases, but again, it's like, she almost doesn't really know what it means beyond the sex pistols or maybe some of the more mainstream stuff. Right. But she loves Elvis and she also likes Neil Young, you know? So like, and Sid Vicious and Sid Vicious, of course. Yeah. So like, there's just this weird, you know, she seems so real as just like this weirdo who has her own sort of interpretation of the world and, and what that is. Well, too, in that, in that sense, you know, the movie is sort of drawing this kind of countercultural through line from like Elvis 
to Neil Young, to the hippies, to Easy Rider, Dennis Hopper, all that stuff, to now, by the late 70s, early 80s, the punk rock movement, that the, the countercultural spirit has sort of moved from genres basically you know to to this point now and again i think that's where a lot of the sort of like self-aware irony for dennis hopper comes in with lines like kill all hippies you know this now like rage this now aggression that the countercultural movement you know from the promise the optimism the imagination of the late 60s to you know goddamn the cusp of Ronald Reagan and the countercultural movement being like, we fucking blew it. We might as well just like, you know, wreck up the joint because, man, it didn't work that time. And maybe that's where also the the sadness and the 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 anger. Yes. But the depression that sort of washes over this entire film is found. You know, I guess one way you could read the film and look at it is, you know, this is just, you know, especially for like for Dennis Hopper, right? This is just the character, James Dean's character from Rebel Without a Cause growing up, right? Like, that's who Dennis Hopper is. You know, he's James Dean from Rebel Without a Cause. Or he's Dennis Hopper from Rebel Without right, a Cause. Right, or he's Dennis Hopper, right? But, like, <laughs> what's happened in that span yeah. of 25 years? He grew up, he had shitty kids, he drank, he tried to keep the party going, the world failed him, he failed the world, he failed himself, and here he is now. He's got a weird daughter who's into punk rock, you know, and he, he's out of touch. He's out of touch and desperately trying to sort of cling to whatever, his youth, his spirit, his his sense of, of freedom in a world that has totally moved on totally moved on you know who didn't move on is that guy who's impersonating elvis on the street he's also living in in the past in the glory of elvis that is an extremely nice moment and i had remembered that that was when i felt like i knew i was watching something special when i saw it the first time and like that's when the movie really felt like it clicked like oh this is a masterpiece uh in that scene when linda mons is like walking with a dude on the streets of vancouver who's doing like a goofy elvis impression and when he finishes you hear dennis hopper and the whole crew like applaud to that guy and he's like did I do good and they're all like yeah yeah Yay! 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 and I mean just how great is that <laughs> I wish every movie had something like that it's like that's the best way you could break the fourth wall is just like yep this is something we encountered when we were making the movie and it wasn't it just a beautiful moment for everybody involved you know it's so nice hearing everyone on that crew be like, hey, great job, man. You know, for me, it's got to be when you have Dennis Hopper drinking and driving a bulldozer in a garbage dump with a bunch oh, of yeah. birds. That's <laughs> when I was like, this yeah. this movie, Jesus. You know, like yeah. that, you know, the recurring garbage dump set is is insane. I mean, it's like, I can't even yeah. describe how many birds there are in every shot. It's like... Again, again, like this is this is like Dennis Hopper just like taking, you know, taking account of his life and where he is now. He's just I'm in the dump, you know, I've been thrown on the garbage heap and I'm just I'm just trying to to have a good time, even though I'm surrounded by by trash or I'm where people think I I belong. But I also love too just the moment when 
And of course, it's a uh, it's a very uh, fateful moment when uh, you know he describes you know how uh, you, you can find lots of cool stuff rooting around in all the garbage as well. And he shows you know CB his great discovery, his great find, uh, uh, just a Chekhov's dynamite. Chekhov's dy- yeah, just a, just a bundle of fucking dynamite with a fuse <laughs> in it that someone misplaced and threw out in a trash can or whatever. And he's like. You can get good money for something like this. <laughs> oh, phantasma mud, you what know? The fuck, dude? <laughs> Just finds a bundle of dynamite. I can't remember. Maybe it even was Oh, Phantasma. There was a, one of the movies. I This has to be like, I have to turn this into a bit. Like, dispatches from the Rotten Tomatoes, um, like, capsules that show up on Plex when I pull these movies up. Because one of the ones for Inseong, I think it was Dennis Schwartz, his oh, capsule just says, like, you, you could almost smell the garbage. <laughs> it's like, cool, dude. Like, that's what you took away from this movie. I mean, I could smell the slaughterhouse, but... Um, yeah, well... <laughs> in the fish market that Tanya works at. Um, Not wrong. But, you know, both of these movies, there are still these, like, really nice miracles and moments of grace throughout. Like, it's it's... One of the, of course, the first image I think of when I think out of the blue are the birds at the garbage dump. But one thing that like really hit me this time is, is that early scene when Dennis Hopper has the two two phones in the prison that he has up against his ears, and he does demand like, oh, time's up, you gotta go. You know, like he's it's not the guard forcing them out; it's him. And there's a shot of Linda Mons like wiping away a tear with the prison phone Mm. you know using the phone to get the tear off of her face uh is like such a poetic and like beautiful moment and then i love in in siang like one of the only moments of joy i feel like she has is when her friend that runs a shop in town mentions like oh we got a new line of lipstick from like the latest like the latest batch that can be ordered like you want to try it out and they like they sit in the back and they like try on all the different lipstick that they have in stock and it's like there can still, you know, there's like, as despairing as it is, there are still like some nice moments that encourage you. Like this is why it's worth, you know, enduring. Well, there, yeah, there's a really heartbreaking subplot with them where where uh, the one woman's like, "Do you want to watch television?" And she's like, "Maybe." My mom won't let me. <laughs> then, but then, yeah, but yeah. but she can't. You know, yeah. I, I was thinking too, like funny connection is like when they're all sort of like hanging out around the shop. You know, these women mention that, like, the Disco-Rama TV show is hosting auditions. And, you know, I just kept yeah. thinking, like, damn, like, she should go to one of those auditions and get on the Disco-Rama, you know? I think both characters could have embraced Disco to, uh, to you know, differing results. Well, I yeah. mean, CB <laughs> did in her in her very uh, inappropriate conversation with that Canadian cab driver say the disco sucks, you know? She's into the punk thing. And like you said, even if she doesn't fully understand the punk rock movement... She she, really does, though. She gets that part (laughs) of it, you know? And also Dennis Hopper does. Because, again, you're talking about moments of of beauty. And I, I think, you know... In Out of the Blue, it's 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 a little harder to find some of those. I mean, I guess seagulls at a dump is good enough for you, but I think for me, it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the moment that I felt was the most hopeful, optimistic, beautiful, whatever, however you want to describe it, was when she goes to to the punk show. 
know, following, of course, this, this horrible moment, you know, I, I guess we, we've alluded to, we might as well just like suss it out a little bit for our listeners. When she goes on her own to Vancouver, uh, because, you know, she comes home and finds her mom like shooting up and getting, you know, watching Monday night football with Charlie. Yeah. Yeah. And he's just trying to take off all her clothes. She's like, well, fuck this. I'm out of here. I'm, I don't want to be home for this. So she goes to Vancouver on her own. She's just sort of wandering around and she gets picked up by a cab driver and they strike up a conversation and he seems pretty cool. He seems pretty chill. He seems like the most Canadian guy you've ever met in your entire life. Their whole interaction, just the way he's talking about music and punk. And then he's like, you want to get high? You want to smoke some dope? Cool. Let's just go burn one down. We'll, we'll chill. But then she goes into his apartment and again, talk about Fassbender. Like, oh my God, this guy's girlfriend is just something straight out of a Fassbender movie. She's just sort of like sitting there and like lingerie, very revealing, kind of... Sucking on a lollipop. Sucking on a lollipop, very menacing, very sexual. And they sort of try to, I guess, finagle a threesome with her and she smashes a vase on their, you know, on their heads and, and runs out of them. But then she goes to the punk show. And when she's at the punk show, she kind of like you know, is hanging around and she meets the drummer of the band that's playing. And the drummer's like now seeming like a very cool dude. He takes her up onto stage and lets her in the middle of the show just play the drums for a, for a few bars or something like that. And the look on her face, that is like the biggest smile I think she has in the entire movie is when she's just like banging on this drum set at this wild like you know, VFW hall punk show that's going on, you know? But it was like, that's sort of, to me, like how Hopper was kind of like, for an older guy, like getting the punk movement and being like, yeah, and it's like inclusive and it's a bunch of like miscreants who are like building families at these like hardcore shows and at these like wild affairs that are going on, you know? And like, there's a moment where you see for her, an exit you see a possibility at this show on that stage playing those drums for just the most fleeting moment of this otherwise horribly depressing film i think my favorite moment of her like reaching those highs of joy is when she decks that cheerleader that fucking like narked on her in the classroom oh, when she yeah. just crosses the football Whose field. brother and... was killed in the fiery crash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I forgot about that. <laughs> Not to split hairs, yeah, you know, but yeah, she might have a case against her. You know? It's cool when she smokes and walks in through the football practice and through the marching band, and yeah, like. You know, you know they, yeah. they are the town pariahs for a reason. We should just let that be there. You know, it's it's not yeah. for nothing that, uh, you know, people don't really like that family too much. <laughs> I mean, similar for Inseung, too. The, the town really, really dislikes Inseung's mother. And they, you know, the town starts turning on Inseung. As the film goes on, because there's all these rumors swirling about like, well, what the hell is going on here? Inseong is sleeping with her mother's younger boyfriend. It's just this yeah. house what of was sex the, and what, taboo. What was the accusation? You're the lover of your mother's lover. Yeah, you talk about Whoa, soap opera shit, dude. dude. Yeah. yeah, can't be yeah. having that. No, no. And that's the thing. She, There is that moment where you think she actually has an out. You know, she has escaped the 
the the one kind-hearted soul in the film, the radio repair boy. You know, he's like, I can, I'll actually take you out of here. Because as we alluded to, you know, another really sordid and cruel motel scene is when uh, the mechanic, Bebo, takes her there with the promise of like, yeah, let's get together and then we're going to get married and I'm going to get you out of here. And when she wakes up the next day, he's gone. That's the betrayal that you were talking about earlier, Andy, where it's like just unbelievably cruel, you know, lets her trust him. And that's the thing, though. That's why she she doesn't believe in the radio repair boy. You know, like she how could she trust anybody Mm -hmm. uh, when she's been scorned so much? And then just like nothing but abandonment and cruelty in her whole life. And then the one time she decides to actually trust another person, that mechanic, he just abandons her. Yeah. You know, but yeah, so she does. Yes, she she rejects that escape from the radio man. And yeah, it leads to again, I think it's just like outrageous how how like both of these films climax with these horrible men being murdered by like with scissors. Yeah. Both films. Yeah. Identical. Getting getting stabbed. Identical. In like the same place. Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, honestly, I mean, I, I, I know we're all just like stunned, be like, yep, yep, yep. I know. because they really do. Like these films are are, you know, so to me, just like linked in in so many of the feelings and so many of the events and in the journeys that the characters take. And then, of course, yes, they both climax in this like grand revenge, this revenge that we didn't necessarily even know was coming but once it does arrive we see that it it was there from the beginning right that this was this was there yeah these are worlds of violence you know and at any moment we were taking for granted that this kind of thing could have happened in the pressure cooker of abuse you know I, i will say an out of the blue like though i think it was sort of like hinted at you know again i hadn't seen this film before like it was when it arrives it takes a very 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 dark turn and from what i understand it was a turn that left a lot of people at the time the film came out very uncomfortable like audiences seemed to to take this particular i don't i hesitate to call it a twist it's not really a twist you know but this reveal as like almost too much, right? As almost like, hey, come on, we were we were here for like a, a kitchen sink drama, but this is getting too sordid for us. You know, and I gotta say too, like with how similar these endings are, I honestly wonder if Dennis Hopper, this is my big conspiracy theory, theory is if Dennis Hopper saw Inseong at the 1976 con, because he was there promoting Mad Dog Morgan. <laughs> and you never know... <laughs> <laughs> he may have ended up in that theater and been inspired by the ending. I've seen Mad Dog Morgan, and I assure you that particular period in Dennis Hopper's life, he wasn't remembering anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like the most visibly drunk I've actually seen him That's in a true. film is Mad Dog Morgan. So, But yeah, the ending of Out of the Blue, I don't know. I mean, it works for me. I understand how... It's like pretty easy to just be like, what is going on here? Because it's kind of an empty gesture. It just feels like pure punk. It feels like pure nihilism. All of a sudden, you know, you thought this movie was at a 10. Now we're taking it to a 20. 
it's just like so despairing, so intense, and there's not like a lot of things signifying it in the lead up until like that very moment. And it's just like so oppressive. It's so dark. It's actually shocking. You know, when we say things are shocking in movies, we're like, most most of the time we're lying. This is like actually shocking, you know? So I think in that sense, yeah, like not that punk has to or does necessarily mean like total despair and nihilism. It's still a huge part of it, you know? And the the rejection of everything, the, you know... I I, I guess I was reading it more, you know... Not necessarily that, you know, your conspiracy, but, but <laughs> you know, where my mind went to was the ending of Godard's Pierrot Le Fou. Uh, if you look at the ending of Pierrot Le Fou, what does he do at the very end? You know, after all that he's gone through, after his betrayals, after his attempts at being a free man in a in a shitty world, he's kind of struck out everywhere. So he wraps his head in dynamite and <laughs> blows himself up on a on a cliffside. You know, and like Godard's ending is absurd, and and I read this as an absurd ending. And yes, it's shocking and it's violent. But I also just looked at it as this sort of like this, this, this moment of, of, you know, it's so over the top for me. It's so out there. It's so like beyond the realm of our comprehension in terms of how we would perhaps act in that similar situation if we were there. But it's like, that's not the point. You know, at the end of the day, this is a movie and this is a movie about rock and roll and this is a movie about punk rock and this is a movie about how it's better to burn out than fade away and using these sort of like rock and roll mantras that she's constantly sort of spitting out throughout the film. It is this very poetic way to end the film and and yeah you know it's wild it's nuts it's crazy but like (laughs) i I also think i guess i was vibing on it you know like but i also what what i think is so great is that it's also like viable within the the realm of realism as well well yeah it's like she snapped yeah she's crazy yeah she's nuts perry mason you know you know failed on every (laughs) every account to to get this girl to, uh, you know, yeah. put down the dynamite. <laughs> yeah. Again, I, I'm with you, Andy. I've always seen it as, you know, more of, yes, like a gesture, a poetic gesture, a punk gesture, uh, as opposed to like, yeah, the literalness of it. But again, yeah. plausible. Like, um, it's not a cautionary tale to me, you know, it's, it's, and it's, it's, yes, it's tragic, but it's tragic in the way that like, a song can be tragic. And I see this film considering all that we've discussed and his influences and him being like inspired by music so heavily as being like, well, how do, how would a, how would like a three and a half minute song end when we laid out all these emotions with a big bang, you know, with a big burst, with a big boom of some kind, you know, in a lyrical way, more than in a, a, again, like purely in the realm of like psychological realism or, or, you know, naturalism or something like that. And even like, there's something that links these two endings to outside of, of course, murdering the, the the toxic men with the scissors but you know her using the dynamite linda mons using the dynamite to blow herself up and her mother and the rig and the rig and the rig very importantly so yes there is kind of this element of well ma like it's you and me like we're in this together like we have like been through such hell 
and goodbye. Like, this is it. We're wrapping this up. And then in Inseong, because I guess we do need to kind of like specify her revenge plot, because it's, mm. which is why it's very Shakespearean and crazy, is she is sleeping with Dado on a regular basis so that when the reveal finally happens and the suspicions reach a boiling point in her own mother about that relationship, the mother snaps and murders Dotto with scissors. So instead of Inseong being the one that actually commits the murder, uses the scissors to kill the, the violent man in her life, it's she convinces her mother to do it through this really elaborate revenge plot. Yeah. She weaponizes anger. She weaponizes the emotions that her mother's going to feel. She... She she sort of jerry rigs a crime of passion, you know. She like she she creates it, you know. She she manipulates this right. event. But then following this, right, it it also ends up in a similar space as out of the blue, except not with you know literal dynamite, but it is kind of like a dynamite of like outpouring of grief and emotion, where she visits her mother in prison, and she can't be fully angry anymore yeah she admits all the pain that she was going through throughout this experience and she hugs her mother you know and to me both films like at the core it's kind of like there's something very similar about those two scenes like it's the mother and daughter together kind of acknowledging like what they endured and were in this together except one ends with dynamite and one ends with just like an explosive goodbye yeah, and as, like, Linda Mon says... The Sid Vicious. When he left, he took his loved ones with him. You know? <laughs> and again, that speaks to that. She really does, you know, for all her problems, and Lord knows there's many, uh, she loves her mom. It's like that moment when she's talking to Raymond Burr, and is like, what do you, where do you see the future? And she's like, well, my mom and me. Oh, your your dad's not coming, you know, and it's like no, <laughs> or whatever. I mean, that was just her subconscious, you know. Yeah. But yeah, I think uh, that moment in the truck with her mom, even though she's a little zonked out and not really processing, uh, she what's sees it. CB sees it as like an act of mercy. Yeah, she does. Her 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 big explosion. <laughs> she does like this is a fucked up world. We are both broken beyond repair, and it's only going to get worse for us from here. I'm going to go to jail or something, you know, like you're going to die with a fucking needle in your arm. Like, yeah, I mean, just 30 minutes before that, they were like maybe trying to get Charlie to have sex with her. So, like, this was not going to. Yeah. This is not going to end well. Yeah. They were trying to jerry-rig a sexual assault because they were worried that, you know, CB was going to turn out to be a lesbian. So they figured, you know, I guess, yeah, your 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 uncle raping you would fix that somehow. Yeah. I mean, fuck, Jesus, right? So for, for They're all very sober. Right. For so for CB, you know, she's just kind of like this is the world like All right, see ya. Peace. We're out. Yeah. Out of the blue, into the, heavy, the black. Heavy, yeah. heavy yeah. stuff. Yeah. I mean, it is. I don't know if we've had a week that has has been as <laughs> like as dark, as bleak, as heavy as as this one. And I, I suppose it's fitting with the the topic. You yeah, know, something yeah. about anger is not gonna like have you walking away, you know, humming a little tune and, and feeling pretty good about the rest of your day. No, no, absolutely not. And I mean, we even kind of like skipped over the fact that both of these films, like 
in the moments like just before the murder kind of feature like really haunting bedside confessions from both of these men because you've got Dennis Hopper on his knees talking very presumably sensitively to CV uh, but it's just it's when everything becomes abundantly clear to us and it's extremely horrifying and dark and at the same time in Inseong that's that's when he is being at his most sensitive to Inseong you know thinking that oh of course this relationship that was completely begat by violence that I instigated through like unbelievable cruelty like he convinces himself that oh of course this is you know you're taking care of me like this is our new life together and it's in those moments of them being extremely vulnerable that you know the strike happens where the scissors come out and they meet their their bloody bloody end and again you know going back to this sort of like you know hopper and this film as as uh as a as a signpost in his whole journey i can't help but reflect on you know what happened to him not three years after the making of this film and its explosive conclusion. Uh, are Have you ever seen the footage of Dennis Hopper, quote, blowing himself up with the dynamite chair? Have you ever seen that footage, Ryan? No, I haven't actually. I saw the footage before. Richard like, Linklater was there. Years ago, yeah. I saw that footage you know, it had been, it's been on the internet at various points in time. You know, in 1983, Dennis Hopper was you know spiraling yet again, and uh, and it came back into my mind. I totally forgotten about it until I watched Linklater. He has like a, he introduced this film in like 2014 or something, probably right around the time that you know you were talking about these restorations, uh, and Linklater brought this story back up and then suddenly, you know, and again, I had never seen this movie. So I had just been like, yeah, Dennis Hopper. Yeah. He went nuts, you know, at several points in his life. And one time he tried to blow himself up or some shit like that. Ugh. But like he Linklater gave a lot of backstory to this thing that I'd only just like known of, you know, as like a, a weird thing. Right. But like he took the entire audience of the screening, the people who'd still hung out and like loaded them up onto buses and was like, come on, let's go. And then he took them to a field. And I'd only known the story about the field. I didn't know that it was linked to this screening of this fucking movie of Out of the Blue. And then in like the middle of like a racetrack, he he had uh, these like stunt guys and pyrotechnic guys put together a thing called like a Russian death chair. And it's something where dynamite can blow up, but not blow up what's in the center of the dynamite. And Hopper like in front of the whole crowd sat in this chair and surrounded by dynamite, surrounded yeah. by dynamite yeah. and had it explode. And like you see dynamite fucking explode. And then Hopper is just suddenly like, Whoa, yeah. Like just totally fine. And like hugging everybody in the crowd and well, being like this fucking rocks, man. He was like the William Castle of his day, the 1980s William Castle. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know if I'd go there far. I mean, it's just a cl clearly a, but then a he man. Yeah, he, he wandered off into the woods and got like 5150 and got like locked up or whatever. Yeah, yeah. They, they took him to rehab after that. But again, I'd known the story of him blowing himself up with a dynamite, but did not know until I saw the Linklater story that it was this immediately movie, yeah. following a screening of this fucking movie. Yeah, which... Ends with dynamite. That's again, that's yeah. what I mean. Elaborate theater, you know, like have have the film end. And he's like, and we're going to take it a step further. We're going to 
4D, you know, yeah. happen in real life right before yeah. your very we're eyes. Gonna, yeah, we're gonna see if I get blown up tonight. <laughs> you know? Well, hell, I mean, I I hope these movies made you sufficiently steamed. I guess is there are there any other films that come to your mind when you think like angry cinema or angry auteur? Yeah, man. I mean, too many, right? And I think like Marsh, you kind of put it you know, in the intro. I mean, I think we've looked at films that have had very like angry subject matter at various points throughout, you know, and, and obviously like, you know, we did a whole week on like activist cinema and I think we're all big fans of, you know, very politically conscious, you know, films and, and you will find a lot of anger in politically conscious films. So, I mean, honestly, too many. And I think that we've covered very well and we've put some really great films out here on the pod uh, that we've discussed. You know, the work of Alex Cox, I think, has a lot of anger in it, you know, a lot of humor. But at the core, I think a lot of like sort of anger with the way that the world was shaped and also how his career went, you know, especially you see that in a film like Walker. You know, I think in in Walker, that, that political anger of his really, really kind of comes out at, at Reagan, at Nicaragua, at, you know, the state of... The Universal state of, Studios. Yeah, Universal, <laughs> dude, you know? Uh, I mean, he was, he was angry, but he was also a punk, and he was also a, a, a troublemaker and a troll, you know? Um, but I'm going to take a slightly different route and um, go to the more sort of like, you know, action violent vendetta kind of shit, which I think has some great, great anger. I mean, I think as big fans of Clint Eastwood, we we know that that man can showcase anger very well and has done so in many yeah. of his characters, particularly Dirty Harry Callahan. But that's not the film that I'm going to bring up. There is a great movie called The Big Racket, directed by Enzo Castellari, an Italian sort of knockoff of Death Wish. Uh, and man, this is just about a bunch of people in a town getting taken advantage of by criminals, by this, this shadowy organization, the Big Racket, and a group of normal citizens. Well, I normal put that in quotation marks. They decide they've had enough and they unleash their own vendetta they against this. Tall. This racket, they walk tall, dude, and they go nuts uh, and and take on the big racket all by themselves. But really, like, the movie has some of the most, like, hair-raising, like, just still in my mind, I cannot understand how they pulled off some of the stunts in this movie. And there is one stunt in particular that still to this day, Castellari would never, like, uh, he might be dead now, but, like, he never divulged how they pulled this fucking stunt off. It's a car rolling down a hill. It's one of the greatest stunts I've ever seen in a movie ever. Like it's, it's worth the price of admission alone for that. But big racket is a lot of fun. I think that movie's great. Sounds good. Yeah. So I was up this week. Uh, and again, thank you very much to Dionisi and our viewer submitted topic. It's really his, week more than it is mine <laughs> well it's our week i guess um who's up next is it yes ryan 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 you're up next what do you got for us well i really liked this topic i liked the idea of sort of like leaning into em emotions you know as a way of of thinking about things or just like a state of mind 
And um, I think it like offers a lot of freedom for it. And, you know, I got to say, I agree with everything we said in the sense that this was a pretty brutalizing week in terms of the, the content in the films. And I feel like this has happened before where we've we've gone dark and then someone kind of blew the whistle and was like, OK, we got to let's take a step back. Let's lighten the mood here a little bit. And it, it was interesting. I, I watched both of these movies like on Monday and Tuesday. And then uh, last night. I went to a screening of David Lynch's The Straight Story. And it's a film I love. I had only ever seen it once before. I think it's a masterpiece. It's so beautiful. And when I was like watching the movie and crying, I was thinking about like, wow, this is like one of the only like or one of the very few like truly optimistic films. And I think it's like a very hard thing to capture you know, to, to make a truly optimistic work of art. So that's the challenge for next week, and I'll allow creative liberties with how you want to interpret that, but instead of anger, let's look at optimism. Yeah, we could use it after this week, that's for sure. Oh, man, yeah, definitely. Uh, may, uh, you can still, for at the moment, follow us on Twitter <laughs> at Gauntlet Movies. Or send us an email or perhaps a topic suggestion to gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Ano pang inaantay mo? Ano pang kailangan mo?